other weekend, I was throwing some trash away, broke a stick to make it fit, and as it broke, of course, some splinters got into my finger. I'm like, oh, I can pull that out. So I pull it out, and little did I know that there was just literally the smallest little hairline piece of wood that was left in my finger. Just the tiniest, tiniest. I didn't even know it was there. And so, you know, the finger's like itching. I'm like, oh, it's just because it was cut. You know, I was like, it's fine, it's fine. Um, then I'm like, no, I don't know. I think there's something there's something in there. But by the time I'm looking at it, the, the skin had closed up over it. And I'm like, okay, I'll just let it kind of do its thing. And, of course, you know what happens, right? The natural fluids that kind of go into there to do its thing are starting to develop. And it's getting very painful and irritable. And then it's like, oh, you can't even really pick things up with this finger without, like, sticking it out so that nothing hits it. And it was becoming quite an irritant. And eventually it worked its way out, and I was able to pull it out. And that's when I learned how small this splinter was. It was, you guys couldn't even see it. You couldn't see it. It's because I wasn't holding anything. <laughs> um, you wouldn't have seen it if I was. I, I, I saw it on my hand, and then I, I breathed, and it was gone. So... That's how small it was. But the smallest, smallest little foreign irritant that can get under the skin can wreak a lot of havoc. Splinters can be incredibly annoying, especially when you have more than one. Brittany and I were in Flagstaff. Was that over the summer? Some time ago. And we, we left the path to go into this beautiful area, take some pictures of our kids. And um, <laughs> at one moment I looked down and realized there were dozens of little cactus prongs stuck all over in my shoe and around. I'm like, oh, let's move, guys. So we move, and it was, it was taking a while to pull all those out. And I was very thankful that I had good, sturdy shoes on. But if I didn't, can you imagine what it'd be like pulling all of those out of your skin? It can be incredibly annoying. And when you miss some, when you miss some, it can irritate far more than the initial injury did. Well, this is a lot like what people in the time of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah is the prophet, would be going through. There is an evil empire that is sweeping down tearing out nations, they come to Jerusalem. And over a series of sieges, they pluck off the leadership, they cripple the economy with tribute and taxes. They're, they're of course, killing people, raping people. It's not a beautiful scene at all. You have refugees running around in panic within the nation, People displaced because their entire village was burned to the ground. Their families were massacred before their eyes. They were running to another town looking for a new home, looking for more work, looking for some food. Vineyards and orchards and wheat fields are being burned. So source of income is being destroyed while the government is being crippled by having to give taxes. Uh, the, the leadership of this empire known as the Babylonians, they come and pluck off your best leaders and take them to their country. So now you're left at 
very incompetent leadership at best. Your business leaders are gone, so infrastructure is falling apart. Businesses are falling apart. Gas prices are going through the roof to modernize it a little bit. Uh, there's no Wi-Fi, right? Everyone's frustrated with that. There's no clean water is hard to get to, and your only routes to get to it may be guarded by soldiers who want to, and they're bored, want to pick on you, take some of your stuff, take maybe your wife, something, uh, just by walking by them. Uh, it's it's a terrible situation that they're in. People are always hungry. There's no security. And they've seen things they can't unsee. And they've felt things they can't unfeel. And by the time Jeremiah's words are written down, the people who are reading it have gone through this event that ends up with the exile and the loss of their city and the loss of their temple. Violent losses. And by the time they've gone through that, Jeremiah's words are now in a book, and they can read these words. And these words are being spoken and written to a people who have had some severe breakings going on in their life around them, and the splinters have pierced them in multiple places. Most of them have been pulled out. They've survived. They've made it on. But there are some that are still stuck and embedded within them. Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet by some, um, has been given the curse or gift of feeling what God feels for his people. And he can feel what the people have felt because he was there with them. And he is writing to them of their painful memories. He's speaking what God says about their painful memories. Because in the people's memories are still fragments of the pain. Fragments of the violence. There are splinters, if you will, still embedded in their memories, their minds, their souls. And these splinters need to come out. They're causing irritations and additional pain in their life. Jeremiah then becomes a guide that says, guys, we need to get these splinters out. We need a container that we can pluck them out and put them in. Something that can hold them to make sense of what's happened to our nation, to our people, to our families. In short, Jeremiah is addressing trauma to the people who have undergone some deep, distressing, disturbing experiences. Now, trauma is one of those words that can scare us. You're like, whoa, I, I don't have trauma. And that may be true. But trauma is anything that has a deep impact on us. It can be an act of violence. It can be a painful memory. Some people get trauma from a car accident. Others are more severe. They may have been raped. They may have been physically, verbally, sexually abused. They may have been in war. Uh, Trauma can be that deep or it can be as simple as I have some emotional wounds that I carry in my life. Trauma doesn't have to be limited to PTSD. It can be as simple as There's a splinter in my soul that I have not been able to take out yet. 
and it's inflaming some irritation. Jeremiah is writing to people who have all kinds of degrees of pain that they're carrying. And he wants to help them heal. So splinters brings an excellent illustration to what can happen to us. So a moment happens, right? You live in this Jerusalem and you see the horrors of it being taken down and the promises of God that you will always be a nation forever and ever suddenly seemingly becoming untrue and things happening to neighbors and things in your own experiences and you're carrying this with you. What happens when we have trauma is that often your memory can literally be splintered or fragmented so that the memory of the past is not a nice cohesive that started like this, it continued like that, and it ended like this. It rarely is that the way that our minds can remember painful experiences. It's more like, I remember a glimpse of this and a visual of that and a moment of that. But it's scattered. It's, it's this whole thing that was splintered in different directions. And neuroscience shows that the brain actually bears the marks of some of these memories. It can be disturbed. So that it's as if there are splinters embedded in us. Jeremiah wants to say, God is the God who heals us from these pains and these experiences. And yes, there may be things you cannot unsee and feelings you cannot unfeel and experiences you cannot unexperience. But God, God can rearrange your rubble into a road. God is into rearranging rubble to roads. And so life once was smooth, and then it got disrupted, and there's, there's rubble, right? And there's these potholes we look back on and say, that, that wasn't very smooth. And we continue, we seem to somehow, this is another thing that pain can do to us, is it puts us in this loop where we continue to go over the same pothole over and over. It's like, I'm fine, I'm good. And then someone says something, or you see something, and it triggers, you're like, oh, I'm good. That, that can tend to happen. You, you remember CDs? Well, remember, I'm sure a lot of us still use them. I don't, uh, yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, CDs, you know CDs? Yeah, those, those um, discs, they get scratches, right? I remember the annoying thing was when your favorite CD got a scratch, and it would just kind of loop on the same part. You'd hear the same lyrics, like, over and over, and you have to kind of knock it, and sometimes it would skip three songs ahead, and you're like, well, at least we're out of the loop. That sometimes happens to the mind, that when enough pain or trauma happens, You no longer move day to day in the sequence of a narrative, but you relapse back over and over, back to this moment. You get stuck. Jeremiah wants to take us by the hand and say, our God rearranges rubble. We can get over this rubble and get back on the road. The road to our true home. So what we're going to see in Jeremiah chapters 2 through 6 And I really encourage you to read it if you haven't, because I cannot in less than an hour do justice to this passage. But what you see when you read it is chapters 2 through 3 are a family drama. You have this husband who has been betrayed by his wife. And then you have the kids. And this family drama is played out where the husband and wife are not getting along and the children are set on edge. Just like a child who watches their parents fight and get a divorce. 
Those children bear a lot of wounds from such an experience. Family units are meant to be that place of safety, but suddenly that place of safety can fracture and splinters get within our soul as we move through life. And the children of Israel are victims of a family drama. That's what chapters 2 through 3 are going to show us. Chapters 4 through 6 are going to alternate from scenes of this family drama and then war poems that Jeremiah composes. War poems, and they're graphic. The war poems evoke the sounds of war and the visuals of war. And so what Jeremiah is doing is he's showing that the people were literally historically victims of brutal warfare by the Babylonians who used extreme terror tactics to get people to cower before them. So what he does is he has this family drama and you're going, it's not really a full story the way we think of a story. It's going to move from this good time, this fight back to this good time, back to this fight. It kind of, it's sporadic. Because this is much like the mind of someone in pain. They don't think linearly. They think in scenes and episodes back and forth. And then the war poems are going to bounce from brutal warfare to God speaking. To Jeremiah crying out, what are you doing God? To God speaking. To war poems. It all goes back and forth. It's not neat and tidy the way we like things. Because once again, Jeremiah is trying to pull out splinters. And to do so, it's not open-heart surgery. He's not diving all in. He's gently and with balance touching the pain here, and then let's ease off. Touching the pain there, and let's ease off. One splinter here, ease off. One splinter there. It's a process in which Jeremiah is giving us doses of healing. So, this text feels sporadic, and it is. But its main point is this, family drama God was the husband and Israel was the wife and she was unfaithful to him. And the children, the rest of the Israelites who come out of this terrible chaos, they feel the trauma of the family breaking apart. So, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, this brutal military comes and wipes the nation out. So Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's look at parts of the family drama. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh. The good times. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares Yahweh. Ah, I remember the time when Israel was my faithful wife. It was the honeymoon phase. Things were good. So good that Israel was fruitful. And whoever plucked the fruit off the vine of Israel, and others whoever messed with God's wife, God severely let them have it. You don't touch my wife. That's what it was describing. There was this great bond of marriage. But, of course, things don't stay. Chapter 2, verse 8, 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares Yahweh, and with your children's children I will contend. 
For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. Go look at other nations and see if there has been such a thing. What thing? This, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Which, by the way, is a marriage term for forsaking a marriage. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out, secondly, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's not been seen anywhere, even in nations that have false gods. They don't give up their gods for other gods. Yet my people give up the fountain of living water, where they had great and abundant source of water. They turn their back on that to go for cisterns, which are just holes in the ground meant to collect rainwater. And these cisterns are cracked, and the water is seeping out of these cisterns. They gave up free, fresh, flowing living water for stale, stagnant, dirty, dusty rainwater that's seeping through the cracks into the mud. Not even the pagan nations, God's telling them and accusing them, not even they have betrayed their gods to go after other gods. But my people betrayed me for no gods. This is disgusting. This is the husband talking. I cannot put up with this wife anymore. And in verse 17, more forsaking... Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking Yahweh your God when he led you in the way? So he's saying, look, all the disaster came upon you. You brought this on yourself. You forsook my protection. You forsook my path. I was taking you to the promised land to keep you there forever. You'd be a nation of nations, king of kings, yet you left my path. You betrayed the security of our home. You've brought disaster upon yourself. And then look at some of the graphic imagery here in verse 23. How can you say, I am not unclean. I have not gone after the Baals. Those are other gods. Then God says, look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can constrain her lust? God is saying, look at the wild donkey in the season of mating. As she goes around and looking for partners to copulate with. He says, that's you, Israel. That was you with other gods. And who could restrain your lust and your heat? Man, that's, they really went against Yahweh. Look at verse 28, 228. But where are your gods that you've made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people, my bride, have forgotten me days without number. 
So verse 35, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. But behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. Then God wants to bring him back. And in chapter 3, look at verse 11, 311. And Yahweh said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. You remember the northern kingdom fell first. God's saying she was more righteous than Judah, the one that's about to follow the Babylonians, Jerusalem. More righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against Yahweh your God, and scattered your favors, and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree, that you have not obeyed my voice. 14. Return, O faithless children. And in verse 15. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, and it shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. They'll be reunited, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage." All of that, all those words is God saying, if you will return to me, I will restore your kingdom and I will make it the kingdom of kingdoms and nations will come here to worship me. And people will no longer say, remember the ark of the God, of God, because God will be so present in their midst that they won't need those symbols of his presence anymore. If they will return. So what we have here is we've seen the story about The husband and the wife get this divorce. She's been utterly unfaithful. And she's going to be cast off to the Babylonians. The children he's now calling to. The children are the readers of this text. Who are the children of those that went through the terrible things when Jerusalem fell. The readers are the people through the generations or the children are the readers through the generations who continue to look at this text, you and I, and hear God saying, look, you see what happens when people betray my love, come and return to me, and I will make everything well. He's calling to the children. That's us. And we may bear wounds and pain from betrayals in the past, and it may be from other church leadership that have brought pain upon us, and they've been a bad example of the love of God. But God's saying, look, return to me, because that's not how I'm treating you. I want... To restore the children. If the wife won't come back, I want to at least bring the children into a safe home. Then in chapter 4. Before we get there though, I want you to see a pattern in chapter 2. In 2 verse 2, you saw that um, you saw that Israel followed Yahweh. So here's just the pattern. How you followed me in the wilderness. 2 verse 2. And then... In 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. 
So they followed him, then they forsook him, and then, in verse 32, 232, Can a bride forget her ornaments, a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So at one point they followed him, then they forsook him, that was the unfaithfulness, and then they just forgot him. They just forgot. What husband? That's the family drama. Chapter 4. The war poems. Some of them graphic because he's trying to get the people who are trying to numb their memories and their pains and say, look, this is too much for us to cope with. Let's just pretend none of this happened. Let's make a new life in Babylon or when they return to Jerusalem. Let's make a new life here and just pretend this didn't happen. (laughs) No, Jeremiah says you have to heal from this. And when we've gone through painful experiences, it worries me when we just say, that's the past, we're going to move on. Okay, but that's still going to follow you wherever you go. That splinter is embedded deep within you, and it's going to start to irritate you. And it's going to start to come out in your behaviors and in your fears and your irrational behaviors. We can never just bury a painful past. And Jeremiah is going to bring up some of the memories so that they can begin to sit with them, sit with the memories and a prophet who shows them, this is our God who took us through that. And he wants to keep sitting with us through the pain until we heal. So, chapter 4, verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. This is sheer terror. Blow the trumpet. Every citizen would know that this meant bad news. This would be like an air raid siren in London during World War II. I didn't live through the Cold War, so I, but I heard you guys had like, you know, bomb practices, like, But imagine it really happening. You hear the air raid siren or the bomb alert, the nuclear threat alert. That's the trumpet being blown. And it's telling all of the people throughout the land, as they hear the terror of the trumpet being blown through the land, drop whatever you're doing and head to the nearest city with walls and hide for your lives because trouble is coming. So they assemble into the fortified cities Um, raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out, he has gone out from his place to make your land waste, your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Look at verse 13. Behold, he, this is probably Babylon, He comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. You hear the panic. And then look at verse 19. This is Jeremiah now talking, by the way. Jeremiah will occasionally disrupt these prophecies to say, What in the world, God? So here Jeremiah is speaking out of pure anguish and emotion. He says, this is 419. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. 
Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste, and suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? The standard is war emblems, which are telling the soldiers what to do. So it's basically seeing fighter jets and hearing missiles going on overhead. He's hearing and reliving all, he's seeing all of these things, and it's anguishing him. And then in verse 23, Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. What Jeremiah is seeing is creation in rewind. Everything is being uncreated back to the beginning in Genesis 1 verse 2. And the earth was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. He's watching the world come unglued. 24, he continues, I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before Yahweh, before his fierce anger. For thus says Yahweh, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. I will leave a tiny part alive, as we're going to see later in the book, because it's going to come back to life. Chapter 5, you have more war poems, you have more anguish. 5 verse 1, Run to and throw, to run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her square to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks the truth that I may pardon her. So there's this panic. Run quick through the streets and all the chaos and just look to see if there's one righteous person like Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. But there was none. And then Jeremiah in verse 3 is more anguish as he pours out. He says, Oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And it just goes on and on with more and more. I want you guys now to look at chapter 6, verse 10. Jeremiah's at a point in 610 where he just can't take any more. And he says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I, Jeremiah says, I am full of the wrath of Yahweh. I am weary of holding it in. What he's taking for these people. But then you know how God answers him? Middle of 11. Well, then pour it out on the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men and so forth. So Yahweh is saying, it is coming down on these people because they have not listened to me. Verse 22, chapter 6, 22. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, 
A people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle. Against you, O daughter Zion. And then Jeremiah is responding to this in verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field. Don't walk on the road. For the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. Oh, daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, and make mourning as for an only son, a most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. You notice the language there of complete helplessness as the avenger comes upon them and has their way with them, and they feel trapped. No escape, no help. Jeremiah is recalling all of this in fragments like the splinters that have pierced their heart so that he can one by one help pull them out. Because throughout this, he's telling the story of, yes, a God who's really upset with them, but at the same time telling them, but it's your fault. But then at the same time, sympathizing with them, saying, I can't believe this is happening to us. Our poor people lament, go ahead and weep. This is tragic. But so in all of these, these shards, these fragmented phrases and poems and images and these splinters of thoughts, all of it is being thrown out there so that the people can one by one heal and recall, oh man, it was our fault. But at the same time think, but some of this was beyond what we deserved. And then parts of it, God saying, but come back. Wait, he still loves us. And through all of this, Jeremiah is using a literary technique Known as parataxis. Para, of course, to come alongside. And then taxis. Parataxis is where you put multiple metaphors side by side and you jump between them. So we have, we have the husband who's upset with his wife, but then the husband who wants the children to come back. We have the warriors who are coming because it's Israel's fault, but then we have the lamentation of my poor people. No one deserves this treatment. Back and forth these images go because what Jeremiah is doing is he's letting the readers engage actively with the text. Because to a people who've been victimized and when we're in pain, we often want to retreat and play the victim. He's giving them a chance to reclaim autonomy. He's giving them a chance to say, wait a minute, I can do something. We can make sense of this disaster. We can put our pain within a container, not a cistern with cracks and it leaks everywhere. That's what we've been doing. We've been trusting in the wrong things. He's giving us a container, a story where we can throw these splinters, where we can put our pain in a place that God will hold and say, see, see, there is a story behind all of this. There is a reason that this has happened, and I have a plan to take you forward if you're willing to show up and let me pull your splinters out one at a time. That's the aim of parataxis. And that's why we read it and we're like, I have a hard time following this and why it took me so long to like, I listened and listened and read and read and looked at some commentaries, went through the text several times, a lot more than normal, because I'm like, how does this connect? And then I'm like, oh. And can you imagine you 
your world's been shattered, it's fallen apart, and there are pieces everywhere, and you don't know how it all connects. And then the prophet comes, and he's giving you these splinters of visions and memories, and like, ah, ah, ah. But then like, oh, I see how it's kind of coming together. And it may not be resolved in our minds, because we haven't perhaps gone through the same exact pain, but you can see that if, if this is you, you, you're sitting here and you're wrestling with what Jeremiah is saying and what God's saying through him, and you're trying to put it together, this can bring healing to a heart that's been splintered. Notice Jeremiah's emotion, too. We can tend to withdraw from our emotions because it hurts too much. But Jeremiah says, no, we need to enter into this. He's the weeping prophet. We need to feel this again to heal from it. So there's moments when he's in utter anguish, beautiful, um, I mean, in a very dark, morbid way. But 419 was beautiful poetry. The one, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Um, it's, It's very not pretty, like roses are red and violets are blue, but it's it has this pure emotion that I think gets you inside the pain Jeremiah witnesses and feels and that the people experienced. And so there's healing. And so God rearranges rubble to roads. That's what we've been seeing here. If you will, look at 6 verse 16. Such a beautiful, great, powerful passage. 6.16, thus says Yahweh, stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. Israel, we've deviated from the path, haven't we? A little bit. Brothers and sisters, we've deviated from the path, haven't we? A little bit. And sometimes we return to a path that we haven't been on for a while. That's why Jeremiah is saying return to the ancient path. And in our absence, it's distressed, it's pockmarked, it's got potholes, and there's rubble. It's falling apart. Partly because we've been victimized in life, maybe. Partly because we have sinned and brought this upon ourselves, maybe. But regardless of the reason... We come to the road and it's full of rubble and it makes no sense. And what Israel experienced and what we have experienced and are definitely going to experience in the future, whether it's personally or politically for our country, there's going to be a time when what we have together, a world that's in unity, a world that makes sense, comes crashing down. There's going to be a time when this falls apart. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to make no sense. And we're going to come upon this rubble. And we're going to say, whoa, where do I go? Like an ant, when you put a stick in the middle of its like ant trail, and they're like, whoa, what do we do? We no longer have a path. We don't know what to do. And so we go in circles and we nurse our wounds and we lick our pains and we, our splinters are beginning to hurt and we don't know how to go forward. We might be able to out of sheer willpower hurdle over one, but then we're like, ah, where does it go now? And we're not sure how to sidestep this. We can't get over that one. There's a lot of mess. We're stuck. This is no longer taking us anywhere. 
But God, what Jeremiah is inviting us in through this sporadic display of splintered passages, he's inviting us in to the reality of a God who rearranges rubble into roads. God doesn't say, magic wand, your pain never happened. That's how we try to deal with it. That's what we wish would happen. We just, that's behind me and we bury it so you gotta move past it, but then you realize, oh, I'm actually not on a road at all. I'm off-roading and like the hobbits who get stuck in spider webs and giant spiders try to eat them because they went off the path. That happens to us and we get stuck in these addictions and these coping methods like webbing that wraps around us and then the spiders of our addictions want to suck the life out of us. We've become broken cisterns that can't hold the life of God anymore. We can't hold the living water. So we try to pretend the rebel's not there. Forge another path this way. See no rebel, yay! But your path, where is it going? Where is it going? You may feel better. You may have said, I put that behind me. But where is this path going? That's not an ancient path. You're making a new path. What did God say through Jeremiah? Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the way that is good that you should go to find rest for your soul's No, I can't look at the rubble. I want to ignore the splinters. But the prophet says, this is the way forward. And what we have to realize is like the text, the text has a war poem of violence here like, yeah! But then we realize, oh, God wants me to put it right here. And then we have this anguish, my heart, my heart, I'm clawing at the sides of my wall, the walls of my heart in anguish. What has God done to us? Oh, we sinned. That's what he's done to us. And then, oh no, the husband's divorcing his wife. But oh, he's calling out to the children to return. Don't be like your parents. Return to me. I put this here. And so piece after piece, we're pick, God is rearranging the rubble. And he's making a road so that we can find, when we ask him, for the ancient paths. And he's saying, here is where the ancient path is. This is the good way. Now go in it. And, as it says, we find rest for our souls. God does not say, forget the rubble and the splinters. He says, if you stick with me, I will rearrange your rubble into a road. And I bet you can't help but think about the yellow brick road, can you? That's what the rubble's good for. Ask for the ancient paths. Your new methods of coping, how are they working for you? Fine, I'm collecting lots of water. Yeah, but it's a cracked cistern. Have you noticed that you're slowly depleting your water supply? You remember remember the cracked cistern, right? That's 2.13. If you want to just go back and reference that. Yeah, it's 2.13. They've forsaken me for cracked cisterns that hold no water. Brothers and sisters, we need the ancient path. We need the original way. When it said in 2 verse 2 that there was a time when you followed me through the wilderness. It was the honeymoon phase. That's what we need to return to. And that's what Jeremiah is asking his readers to come back to. Is don't be afraid of the rubble. Because our God rearranges rubble to roads. So ask. Ask him for the ancient pathways. Asking him for the ancient pathways is better than addicting ourselves to coping methods. Far better. Far better.
Those cracked cisterns get us nowhere. But the ancient pathways is the way of living water. That's what he's inviting us to. But, 6.16 ended like this. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient pathways where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So, nice sermon, Pastor Brandon. But, no, I was asking for that. I'm saying, you're sitting there going, nice, great, ask for the ancient pathways, sounds great. But then when the rubber meets the road, no pun intended, you will actually have to face the rubble. And you're going to say, mm, nope, I will not do it. Just like Israel did. We will not walk in it. You're at a choice tonight. You've now heard, so you're now responsible. You're welcome. <laughs> to ask for the ancient pathways. But you need to say yes, which means we need to show up and let God pull the splinters out. And it was not going to happen tonight friends. It starts tonight, but he'll get one and he'll come back for the other one later. We keep asking for the ancient pathways because we're so prone to say, this is nice, but I'm tired of these splinters. Ooh, look at this. And we go off and forge a new path. We keep asking for the ancient pathways, which is why we keep taking communion every single Sunday night, which is why we keep coming to sing songs every Sunday night, which is why we keep coming to hear the word taught every single Sunday night, which is why we keep coming to eat dinner with people that we eat dinner with every single Sunday night. This is why we keep doing these things is because it's our way of coming to a God who knows what it is to hurt and saying, I am splintered and I am fragmented and I'm all over the place and I have a tendency to forge my own way off the path. I'm regathering week after week to ask for the ancient pathways and to face the things that are too hard for me with God and with the fellowship of my brothers and sisters. So, the good news is that we have a God who rearranges your rubble into roads. Let him do it or forever stay stuck in a time loop of pain. He's giving you a way. Let's look to him. And as you read, Jeremiah, I really hope you guys enjoy reading through it each week as we go. Let Jeremiah be your guide into the way forward because he is gutsy and he takes a lot for what he says. No one likes him. That's the bottom line. But maybe we can be people that like him. So he can be in heaven saying, yay. <laughs> Joking on that one, though. Um, let's ask God for the ancient pathways and find rest for our souls. Father, take these splinters, the ones that are too.